The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Good afternoon. Um, you're all very welcome to today's iteration of the Early Modern Seminar, um, coming live from Trinity College Virtual. And today's session is a little bit different to our normal format. What we're going to do is we have four panelists drawn from our PhD cohort here in the Centre of Early Modern History, um, who are going to introduce their projects and tell us a little bit about the exciting research that they are doing. So today, last time out, we had two of our colleagues, three, three of our colleagues, Simon, Graham and Robert, introducing some of the research problems and ideas that they're currently grappling with. Today, we move to some to four of our students and I want to introduce them all to be initially and then we'll pass on across, across we pass on through our participants. So the first, and we're going to take them in chronological order, which as historians seems the most sensible way to organize things. And first up, we're going to have Grace Hoffman, who is beaming in all the way from Florida. Um, so this is a truly global seminar. And Grace is working on, the, and the title of her work is The Traitorous and Unfitting Words in Ireland's 1641 Depositions, the Legal, Social, and violent implications of language. Um, and she's working with Professor Jane Olmar. Um, following Grace, we'll have James Greeney, um, otherwise known as Ash Paths Dependency. Um, Grace is Ash Grace Hoffman, if you want to follow her on Twitter. And James is um, working on, I don't think a particularly path dependent topic, is working on history and identity in Restoration Ireland, 1660 to 91. He's funded by the Irish Research Council and he's supervised by Robert Armstrong and Miholo Shukru. Um, we then move from Restoration Ireland to the Dutch borderlands, no doubt contested, um, with Caspar Kopp, whose title is Demarcating the Dutch Borderlands, the General Light Slanden, and the Emergence of the Modern Dutch State, 1713 to 1763. His research is funded jointly by the McDowell Memorial PhD studentship, who knew Orby McDowell was interested in Dutch history. And then the, and, and the Jada Fonds, granted by the Prince Bernhard Culture Fonds, um, and supervised by Drs. Graham Murdoch and Professor Michal Oshokru. And finally, we bringing up, bringing up the end of our, our presentations will be Joel Herman, who is working on revolutionary currents, the rise of colonial counterpublics in the age of revolution. Um, and he's working um, on, with, with me um, and working under a Provost, Provost Project Award here at Trinity. Um, so Joel, late 18th century, Grace beginning in the mid 17th century. And I'm going to hand over to Grace to, to start us off. Thank you, Patrick, and thanks to everybody who's listening. Um, it's great to be able to join even from all the way in Florida. So my PhD looks at the traitorous speech and unfitting words in Ireland's 1641 uh, depositions. So I look at various types of speech and a lot of what I look at are insults and slander. 
And there's a lot of amazing insights and questions that we can bring to the 1641 depositions when we begin to pay attention to what people were saying to one another, what people remembered as having been said to one another, and what was recorded in the depositions. So when I first discovered the 1641 depositions in general, I became really fascinated with uh, the source. There's just so much material in all the accounts in the depositions. And also what's so amazing is that there's so many questions that we can still bring as historians, especially in relation to questions of social history. So when I was looking at the depositions for the first time, a few times looking through all of the accounts, I started to notice all the words and speech that was recorded. Specifically, what I was interested in were the words of insults that people were calling one another. And there are hundreds of accounts that include these insults and other types of speech. So for example, in 1646, a woman who was named Martha Piggott she arrived in Dublin and brought her story from stories from the 1641 rebellion. And she reported of words alongside other things that she had seen like arsons, desecration of sacred objects, and also immense violence. In one account, in one moment, she talks about the killing of her husband and her son, um, who she, which she witnessed, um, she witnessed herself. And she tells how the Irish rebels, as she refers to them, further disfigured and mutilated her husband's body after he had been killed. And she then tells that as, um, as they're mutilating and disfiguring his body, they're triumphing over their actions using what she calls spiteful and malicious words against himself and his family, calling him a Puritan and a roundhead. Now, while Martha Piggott um, talks about being called a Puritan and a roundhead, Others recorded many other types of insults like traitorous rascal, pottage bellied rogue, heretic or no Christian, or even things like whores and jades for women or being called English dogs. Others also referred to words that were just too terrible to even repeat. In a few accounts, we even get references to these words um, where they're asked about what, they've been, what they have heard and they just say that they can't repeat what has been said to them. So what I became really interested in was that in the midst of all of these atrocities and violence that we can find within the depositions, people still remembered the exact words that they had been called and they reported them and they also were recorded and written down by the commissioners who were taking these depositions. Now there's a lot of questions that we can begin to ask um, when we start to really pay attention to these words. And one of the big questions that I started to ask right away was, was the, what, were words a specific focus of the investigation for the 1641 depositions? Were commissioners directly asking uh, deponents what words they had heard? And we find evidence of this right away in the official commission for the 1641 depositions. So if we look at the first commission, um, commissioners were instructed to record and investigate robberies and lost properties. That was the main focus of the commission, but they were also told to look for treason and violence. And under the category of treason is when we first get a specific instruction to look for words. So they were told to look for traitorous or disloyal words, speeches, or actions. When we get into the second and third commission, which came out only a few weeks after the first commission, 
we get the same reference to the importance of investigating treasonous words and speeches alongside actions, but we also get an additional instruction that was added where commissioners were told to investigate any other unfitting words or speeches that were spoken during the rebellion. So in the official commission, we already get two clear instructions to investigate language. One that was precise, treasonous words, <clears throat> and one that was more broad, unfitting words. And part of my research is also looking into what was considered treasonous and what kind of words did they mean when they wrote down unfitting words. And there's so many types of different um, speech that's recorded. So there's a big argument that unfitting is a very general broad term for a specific reason. So it's clear that commissioners were told to instruct, uh, told to investigate these words and they were instructed to do so. Um, but we also get evidence in some accounts where they were actually directly asking and we get references to those questions that, written, that are written down in some of the manus manuscripts. My research also place, tries to place the official commission into a wider 17th century Irish context. So I look at some other laws that existed in 17th century Ireland to show that the interest in words um, from an official legal perspective was not unique to the depositions. So beyond laws and uh, official concern for words, my research also explores other areas. One, thing, one in particular is violence. I started to ask what words, um, how they fit into the violent context of some of the accounts in the depositions. Were words violent acts in themselves? So even in the official commission where we get the instructions to look for robberies, treasons, and violence, um, I argue that violence um, included words that at, in the 17th century, violence um, words were violent acts in themselves. But also when we pay attention to words, we get more insight into what perhaps motivated people's actions. Um, sometimes you see that a word um, instigates some of the later physical actions that come. Um, we also see that sometimes perpetrators use their words to justify the violence that they're inflicting upon their victims. And so there's a lot of space to learn about um, the violence and why people were doing it um, or why they, how they understood um, what they were doing. Beyond violence and laws and the official commission, there's also a lot to explore about the history of emotion in relation to the 1641 depositions. There's questions of gender. What were women being called versus men? And what were they be calling in, being called in a similar way? Um, other things like honor and re reputation, ideas of shifting power dynamics. Um, so who was able to say what to, to who? Um, people who used to be in positions of subordination within the context of the rebellion, were they now feeling validated to say things that they hadn't been able to say in the past? That's a really interesting uh, question for me as well. And also what's so amazing about the depositions is that we also get to see reports from tradesmen um, and all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds. We get merchants, tailors, soldiers, even references to servants, widows who are all reporting and very concerned with the words that they've heard, that they've been called themselves and that others have been called. Ultimately, what my PhD um, argues is that while at first in the midst of all of the violence and other events that we can find recorded in the 1641 depositions, 
words can sometimes seem secondary at first. But ultimately, when we start to pay attention, we realize that at that time, words were not secondary. In fact, they were a really important piece and sometimes a really dangerous part of the atrocities that are found in the 1641 depositions. So I'll leave that uh, with you for now, but I look forward to any questions and feedback and thank you so much. Thanks, Grace. Um, that was wonderful. And you've kept immaculately to time, keeping, I think, everybody else on their toes. Just to point out to the, to our audience, which now numbers over 30, over 30 people. So those of you who feel like you're speaking to a void, you're not. Um, the question and answer tab is open. So you can record your questions. You can file them in advance. So this is sometimes helpful, I think, with this format. You don't have to remember your question later on. And um, so do start posting questions and then we can put those to the speakers afterwards. Um, I'm going to move on to our second speaker, which is James. So I'm going to hand over, hand across to James. Hello everyone. Um, and for the record, I think it should be pointed out that the path dependency handle I use on Twitter uh, came from when I was a master's student doing political sociology. And sometimes I wonder if my research isn't actually political sociology or historical sociology masquerading as some kind of early modern history. Um, so my work looks at the relationship between history as a genre of writing and identity formation in Restoration Ireland. As many of us are aware, this was a period of enormous tension in Ireland and across the Stuart monarchy. Um, and yet it's also somewhat overlooked being sandwiched between two periods of civil war. In Ireland, the past was used to provide or contest the legitimacy of the state and its institutions, the monarchy, and also the institutions and practices of the churches of Ireland in the context of this tension. To try and constrain my approach, I have focused on a set of deep histories, histories of Ireland which try and take on a large breadth of the Irish past, usually stretching at least as far back as Henry II. This is in part to prevent getting bogged down in the numerous controversies of the 1640s, but primarily because it also allows me to look at the scope of intellectual thought and restoration Ireland. Um, so the authors who concern me most are John Lynch, Peter Walsh, Roderick O'Faherty and uh, Richard Cox. Other usual suspects of the Irish Restoration period, such as Edmund Borlas and Nicholas French appear to a lesser extent, as do earlier authors such as John Temple, Geoffrey Keating, James Usher and John Davies, and the anonymous author of the aphorismical discovery. These works are referenced by the later authors and their arguments are recontextualized and reappropriated into this new period of uh, post-Civil War tension. Because these authors touch on many different aspects of Irish history, and to try and allow me to produce a sensible thesis, um, I have divided the thesis into different themes, which form the basis of my substantive chapters. The themes include religion, the Irish parliament and common law, um, the monarchy and the concept of conquest. The four authors I rely on most, Lynch, Walsh, O'Flaherty and Cox, all come into each of these areas and I rely on them throughout with support from other authors as necessary. It's worth bearing in mind that these authors are not necessarily experts in each of these topics and far, being, and far from being an impediment to our work, this is actually worthy of investigation itself. For example, John Lynch was absolutely no expert in early medieval Irish law, relying on Lothar Machirvish 
and Conor McCulchan. Um, and Richard Cox likewise takes his lead from James Usher in writing on religion. What I find most interesting here is how they use and recontextualize the information and arguments from these older texts in service of their own arguments. In these cases, for example, Lynch is attempting to demonstrate that Ireland was not the lawless place that was described by Geraldus Cambrensis. And Cox wants to make a broader argument about supposed Irish degeneracy. And the decline of Irish religion from its supposed golden age is one element of his argument. The continuity of arguments from early Stuart and even Tudor writings into this period and how they are adapted into new contexts is in these histories is a key element of my research. Similarly, in writing on the Irish Parliament, I have tracked how Patrick Darcy's arguments for legislative independence from the 1640s remain current in Restoration Ireland, despite complete lack of access for Irish Catholics to that Parliament until 1689, when the then overwhelmingly Catholic Parliament of James II firmly stated its own legislative independence. In another example from my research into this Irish Parliament and straying somewhat into the 1640s, the 1689 repeal of the 1662 Act of Settlement mirrors that earlier act, but instead places the blame for the violence of the 1640s on Protestants rather than on Irish Catholics and reframes the 1688 intervention of William of Orange as being Cromwellian. Most recently, I have been working on drafting my final substantive chapter, which looks at the concept of monarchy in Restoration Irish histories specifically the justification of the Stuarts as descended from the Milesians of medieval Irish genealogy and the wider relationship between these genealogies and the formation of a new Irish identity. It's a big chapter which wraps up my themes with the reconciliation of the Stuarts as the inheritors of pre-Norman Irish kingship through their Scottish ancestry representing perhaps best the pragmatic approach that much of the intellectual history of early modern Ireland demonstrates. Roderick O'Farrity, one extreme end, places James I as successor to Royal Hohor with an interregnum of nearly four centuries, while John Lynch, more contemporary, points out points to the early Stuart parliaments of Ireland with their pa partial Catholic representation as a representative assembly of the kingdom, acclaiming James I as king in a way that their Tudor predecessors had not been. In Lynch's case, at least, there's a clear sense that he's trying to reconcile his Stuart loyalism with his Catholic faith, and by locating the Stuarts as Irish, or at least Milesian, with the aid of genealogical arguments, it helps him to do this. These genealogical arguments also allow Lynch and others to go one step further, and as Geoffrey Keating had advocated, argue for a singular Irish Catholic identity. Um, no doubt assisted by the recent memory of the Confe Catholic Confederation of the 1640s. Uh, this new Irish identity, rather than separate Old Irish or Old English identities. Um, this is something that had been contested throughout the 1650s and even somewhat into the 1660s with people like Richard O'Farrell in Rome, arguing that the Old English were inherently untrustworthy because of their English ancestry. They could not be trusted. So you get people like Walsh and Lynch advocating for a unified Irish identity in the face of that, trying to demonstrate their Catholic loyalty while also somehow attempting to fit the Stuarts into that. It's a big chapter and like the rest of my thesis, there is quite a bit that needs explaining or contextualizing. But by focusing on a key set of authors and texts, I can provide a more constrained investigation throughout my thesis 
if anyone has any questions about the specific themes of my work, parliament, conquest, the monarchy, or religion, please ask away and I'll answer as best I can. Excellent. Thank you, James. And again, I think you've captured admirably to time and drawn out some very interesting themes and thoughts. And we shall now move on to the Dutch Republic or the United Provinces. Casper, take your pick. Um, All right. Um, let me just uh, quickly share my screen here. There we go. Right, so um, I'm very excited uh, to share my research with you today. Um, as the title suggests, I'm looking at the relationship between borderland governance and uh, state formation. And that is a topic that has received uh, quite some attention from historians. Um, but I hope to bring something new to the table by looking at the Generaliteitslande, or Generality Lands, which were borderlands of the Dutch Republic. Now, the Dutch Republic is in itself um, uh, an entity that very much defies most, nation, uh, most, um, most notions of statehood. And that's why this research, I think, could be quite interesting. Now, to explain why, um, why it defied most notions of statehood, I've made this quick graph of its structure. Um, it should be noted that this graph does overlook certain elements of the Dutch political structure. But um, these are the main elements that um, are significant for my research. So as you can see from this graph, um, it had a rather confederate structure, which means that the state general or the generality, which is uh, the central government, it was not sovereign. In fact, it derived its power uh, from the seven provinces, which are uh, listed along the top. And I've highlighted uh, Holland there because even though Holland had one vote, like all the other provinces uh, in the generality, uh, it had over 50% of the population and the tax revenue so uh, in effect, it was actually very influential. Sorry, <clears throat> it was uh, very influential over the, um, uh, the generality's policies as a whole. Now, uh, one arm of the generality uh, was the Council of State, whose uh, competencies were very badly defined and often led to conflict with the rest of the generality. But um, one area where it had clear authority was uh, in the governance of the generality lands which is, of course, uh, quite uh, important uh, for this research. And what should also be noted is that uh, while the provinces could very much influence the state's general, uh, the Council of State was more independent in its actions. So it, for these purposes, it reflected more uh, a traditional central government. Now, um, I'm just going to quickly explain what each level of government uh, did. Uh, the provinces are very simple. They um, basically uh, had complete autonomy. They uh, took care of all affairs taking place within, within their own territories. Only uh, matters that required national attention were delegated to the states general. And those included um, conducting foreign affairs, leading the army and navy, managing the generality's finances and uh, governing the generality lands. And, um, as I mentioned before, a few of those um, competencies were passed on to the Council of State, uh, in this case, the leading of the army and the governance of the generality lands. And um, this, this whole structure was far more complicated. For example, uh, there was somewhere in that structure, the Prince of Orange Nassau, of course, and uh, big oligarchs of, of major cities. But for this research, the, the, the main thing that should be noted is that the Council of State was relatively independent in governing the generality lands. Um, and just before I move on, uh, I just want to show you on this map where they were. 
I don't know if you can see my cursor, but there are these four territories in the south over here. And uh, for my next slide, I'm going to zoom in on uh, this south, far southeastern part over here. Now, uh, just to explain quickly what the Generality Lands were, uh, they were territories conquered by the Dutch Republic after its initial revolt. So uh, they didn't join willingly, but they were conquered during, mostly during the war uh, against Spain, the 80 years war, but also thereafter. And partially in be, uh, because of this, uh, they never formed provinces of their own or were incorporated into existing ones. Uh, there was no re overarching regional institutions in these areas. They, um, they did have a few local institutions like city councils, but the only overarching institutions within each of these regions uh, uh, was the Council of State. So its rule here was quite direct. But uh, despite having fairly direct rule in these regions, uh, they would have posed uh, by their very nature uh, considerable uh, challenges to borderland governance. Uh, just if you look at the map here, um, these territories are completely scattered. They're disconnected from the rest of the Republic and uh, quite distant in uh, quite distant from the government in The Hague. And just the logistical implications of uh, collecting taxes and imposing laws here would have been uh, enormous. There's also some uh, geopolitical considerations that made governance here difficult. Um, so it clearly has a long and irregular border uh, with a lot of different entities, ranging from major actors uh, such as Prussia and Austria to actors as small as uh, free imperial churches within its cities. So there's a lot of different um, issues that they would have uh, dealt with when governing these territories. Also, uh, local society would have posed a lot of different issues. Um, so borderland society in general uh, is accepted to be a bit more resistant to um, state, um, state policies than uh, most other parts of the country, simply because it's, um, it puts more value into local institutions than the distant state. And in the case of the Generality Lands, this was a particular uh, big issue uh, because uh, they were also religiously uh, divergent from the rest of the Republic, mostly. Uh, the Generality Lands were predominantly Catholic, while the rest of the Republic uh, was a majority Calvinist. And even though it was not the state religion, they did actively promote the religion throughout their territory and banned the practice of uh, other religions. So that would have been a point of contention. Now, the combination of relatively direct and independent rule by the state institution um, and the very difficult nature of governance in these regions provide an ideal um, setting to observe the relationship between uh, the governance of borderlands and state formation because you have a lot of different challenges and relative freedom to uh, solve them. Now, um, a quick note on the time frame I've selected for this research, uh, 1713 to 1763. Um, this is uh, a relevant period because it includes a lot of major events that uh, affected the Republic as a whole, as well as uh, specifically the Generality Lands. So, for example, the Barrier Treaty of 1715 uh, defined a lot of the borders uh, of what became the Gener Generality Lands, um, and also the campaigns of 1744 to 1748 during the War of Austrian Succession. Uh, saw uh, the Generality lands largely occupied by French forces. And uh, things like this also allow, to, um, allow me to see the Generality lands in a lot of different circumstances, uh, from relative stability uh, after the Peace of Utrecht to extreme instability during the War of Austrian Succession. That should give a lot of different data to compare. 
Also, uh, 1713 is seen as, uh, mo it's mostly seen as the beginning of the Dutch decline. Um, and it has, it has not been addressed as much by historians uh, compared to the previous centuries of Dutch history. And uh, I hope to shed a bit more light on that overlooked part um, of that history. Now, uh, for my sources, this should answer the question for many of you why uh, a Dutch guy is studying Dutch history in Ireland. Uh, I'm looking at the Fajo collection, which is uh, a, a large collection from the Fajo family. Uh, and they were very prominent within the structure uh, of the Dutch Republic. Um, they held the position of Gifir for 125 years. And the Gifir was basically charged with uh, organizing meetings of the States General, uh, recording them, and also maintaining correspondence with foreign and domestic uh, envoys. And of this correspondence and the notes from the meetings were all copied into their archives, which they were also uh, the curators of. And um, this, this is clearly a, a very uh, rich source for studying the structure of the Republic and its functioning. And uh, most of it still remains in the National Archives in The Hague, but a very large part of it uh, was acquired by Trinity College in 1802. And uh, this included uh, all of their maps, which is of course uh, quite relevant for um, a study into borderland governance. So um, yeah, I, I'm trying to look at both parts of this separated collection to paint a clear picture of um, what was going on in these uh, generality lands. And um, then on to my concluding remarks, uh, just to uh, reiterate, the main research objective is uh, determining the extent to which the governance of the generality lands by the central institutions of the Republic uh, reflect the process of state formation. And um, that of course also uh, raises a lot of other questions. I I've jotted a few down here, but um, I'm open to any questions about, uh, about this presentation? And with that, I'd like to end and thank you all very much for your attention. Thank you, Casper. Again, absolutely fascinating um, presentation. And I'd always thought of it, I've always heard it as the Fagel collection, but I'm going to bow to your Dutch expertise in the Fagel collection, always prefer to it thereafter. Um, and again, very useful slides. Um, I'm going to hand over to our final speaker, who is Joel, who hopefully hasn't disappeared. There he is. Yep. Um, and talk thank about you. revolution. Yeah. Thanks so much, Patrick. Uh, and thank you to those who are attending uh, and the others who uh, presented those fascinating presentations. I thought I'd begin by uh, giving a little background uh, as to the inspiration of uh, my project, uh, sketching some contours, ideas, and a general framework. Uh, and then I'm going to discuss what I'm currently working on and conclude by addressing one of the problems that I'm facing uh, in my uh, current research. So the inspiration for what I'm currently working on came out of an MPhil dissertation that I completed at Trinity. I was interested in Irish-American connections and reciprocities um, as I am American and more recently an Irish citizen uh, as well. And so I decided to focus on uh, Ireland in the American Revolutionary period. Uh, so long story short, uh, I, I uh, eventually uh, focused on one event, uh, and that was the free trade crisis that developed in Ireland in 1779. And the causes that led to this crisis uh, shared uh, similarities uh, to the origins of the American Revolution, which had begun formally in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. So I investigated this mostly through uh, the medium of the newspaper. And as I read newspapers uh, from 1779, 
uh, mostly Irish newspapers, and there were uh, a lot of them. I constantly ran into uh, reports of the American conflict uh, and also much other British news uh, and news from further afield even. Uh, and, and a lot of things that you might not expect to uh, run into in an 18th century newspaper if you happen to be reading one. Uh, but this led to a series of questions uh, about the press, but also about uh, the history uh, that's been written uh, of this period uh, and questions that, uh, that, you know, in which I was asking if the national angle is appropriate or uh, whether this imperial crisis is, uh, is better taken in, uh, you know, using a transnational scope. Um, in the, and in that sense, uh, you know, in the sense that the penetration of the news uh, and these events has been shown to have reached many levels, demographics, um, and breached ethno-linguistic uh, barriers. And so I began to think about the ways in which uh, the information and communication infrastructure of a global empire of trade and commerce and culture had facilitated uh, the development of an imperial public sphere. Uh, but at the same time, the discourse of this sphere was not hemmed in by imperial boundaries, nor controlled by imperial agents. This was a space in which multiple publics participated and acted from different discursive sites within empire. So the imperial public sphere being proposed here is a long way removed from Habermas's original conception of the idealist bourgeois public sphere and readily accepts that large parts of uh, the populations in each place were excluded and unable to directly participate in this discourse, but through their participation in events and reports of these events that appeared in the newspaper across empire, a certain level of imagined participation was possible. People in Ireland and America could read news, hear it read aloud or debated, and imagine themselves as part of social and revolutionary movements. They could also read news of revolutionary events happening elsewhere and see themselves as part of a wider reaction against imperial economic, uh, political economic policy emanating from the London metropole. But before asking why they rebelled, it's perhaps important to ask what they were rebelling against. Uh, in reading Irish, British, and American newspapers at this time, I'm beginning to ask how imperial identities and publics are formed and also how allegiance to the imperial state was sustained. In his work on the fiscal military state, John Brewer has raised this question of allegiance and uh, many scholars have, have, uh, have sought answers uh, and used different approaches. Uh, and these include uh, merging national identities, religion, commercialization, and more recently political parties. Others have held up the preeminence of epistolary networks, um, particularly those of merchants um, and also other personal networks. Uh, but I would suggest that whether political, national, religious, or economic factors were of the greatest influence, it was the ability of publics in multiple geographic locations to participate in debates originating in the imperial center that allowed individuals, communities, and interest groups to retain a level of allegiance. In this way, the institutions and infrastructure of the imperial state facilitated but did not control a common culture through what I have termed the imperial public sphere from the beginning of the 18th century. And so this, this brings me to what I'm currently working on. Uh, and, and that is the first section of the dissertation, which is a discussion of the advent and analysis of the formation of the imperial public sphere in Britain, Ireland, and the American colonies. There are clear differences uh, and similarities. And it's worth here uh, emphasizing this point. And it brings to mind the comparative approach of uh, the French historian, Mark Bloch, 
an approach which encourages investigation of differences uh, as something that can be equally illuminating as, as those shared uh, features and similarities. And highlighting these similarities and differences between each case, the hope is that this discussion and the investigation of the flow of information, the news, and print culture more widely will prepare the reader for comparisons that will be made between Ireland and the American colonies in the second half of the 18th century. Comparisons that fasten on a common patriotic discourse emerging in the British Atlantic at this time, a patriot critique of empire which emerged out of a shared imperial culture and developed with increased pace from the end of the Seven Years' War to the American Revolution. Uh, so this section begins with the Postal Act of 1711, um, and explores this consolidation and integration of the imperial postal system and, and, and investigates how information was disseminated across empire in each of these, each of these three locations. Uh, this will frame later arguments that the expansion of the news as a medium of information and public communication was central to this development. In, this, in the sense that the news and newspapers and the newspapers in which it found form offered a fiction of praxis and participation through the printing of metropolitan news, but also through the publicizing of petitions and other forms of public opinion, be they expressions of loyalty to the king or popular reaction to power. This fiction of participation in a common culture is related to, but quite different than Anderson's concept of imagine, the imagined community, which theorized and outlined the roots of modern nationalism in the early modern world. But here, I'm not speaking of uh, purely uh, national identities or an undisputed national community. Uh, rather, I'm talking about publics and, counter, and the counterpublics that acted within and indeed constituted this imperial public sphere. So to conclude, uh, I just wanted to outline one problem or uh, issue I'm basing, and, and this falls along the lines of a point that was brought up uh, in the first seminar a couple weeks ago uh, by Dr. Robert Armstrong, uh, and, and that centers on the interplay of ideas and action and how, are the, how the two are connected. Um, you know, based on the sources I'm using, it's difficult to make definite connections between patriotic ideas reported and commented on in newspapers and the action they may have led to informed or influenced. So I've sought to address this concern through archival research and urban comparative case studies that will make up the third section of the dissertation. Uh, these case studies will focus on Dublin and New York as, as uh, nerve centers and kind of uh, centers of imperial infrastructure in each um, in each location, and we'll ask questions of how, where, when, and why people read newspapers, um, and also how uh, this may have influenced and perhaps informed revolutionary action. So to conclude, I would say that the sustained analysis of newspapers is something uh, that's rarely been done. Um, I think it's often a case of cherry picking uh, for uh, facts or support, uh, you know, used in other arguments. And in this way, I think a wider reading of certain newspapers at this time, papers that were certainly written for different ideological blocks and, and publics and, and groups and communities can say something about uh, the communities in question, uh, telling us things about the publics they addressed and those who were excluded uh, and leading us to wonder if perhaps the news could start or at least shape the narrative of revolution. I hope uh, this has been uh, interesting and helpful. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions at the end. So thank you very much. Super, thanks, Joel. Um, and again, I suppose just I'm struck here trying to think, is there a way we can link these papers? And one of the things that strikes me is a sort of deep 
thinking and deep reading that James was talking about, I think links together some of what Grace is doing with depositions and I think shining up some really interesting sort of things there about language. What James obviously himself is doing with histories, Joel is doing with newspapers and seeing them not just, as he says, as repositories of sort of comment and facts and colour, but as actually as, as items, which comes back to thinking about the artefacts and maps that Casper is reading in the Fagel collection. There, I've done it. Now, what I want to do is I want to open up to questions. I have some questions coming in on the Q&A feed, so I'm going to go to those first. And then as people have questions, if they want to submit them there, and we shall we'll, we'll go with them. The first questions that I have are both for Grace. Um, I have two questions here initially from Brenton Toomey. Um, one, how do you see the issue of understanding slash comprehension of and the interpretation of language in this period, i.e. the interaction of multilinguistic and monoglot participants who spoke either Irish, English and or Gaelic and Lowland Scots? I think that's an interesting question. But also, how do you see the use of particular terms? And he um, posits roundhead, for example, when they were first used. And do you de detect any standardization or feeding of key terms to deponents, particularly if they're illiterate or ill-educated by the commissioners? <coughs> yes, thanks for those questions. I think they're really important to consider. Um, I won't take too much time, but um, it's important to say that when we work with the 1641 depositions, there's always a question of accuracy and how um, how much is reliable, how much has been left out. Um, and I think that kind of goes with a lot of the questions that have been asked. Um, so in terms of uh, the interpretation of language, I think translation is a really important to remember. Um, even in some of the accounts that I work with uh, that are talking about specifically the words that were said to them, even specific insults that um, they're remembering, um, there are indications where they actually say that they were said in Irish. Um, so that's always important. Unfortunately, it's very hard to know if they were correctly translated um, and if they were just given a standard um, insult to go along with it. I think that's a hard question that we have to engage with more and there's much more to, uh, to, to do on that work. Um, but they definitely were translating in some cases at least. Um, in terms of specific terms, uh, there's few that are very common, uh, rogue and whore. Uh, rogue for men and whore for women. Um, there's also other words like, okay, roundhead. Um, roundhead is not as common. Um, it normally appears alongside other words like Puritan or parliamentary rogue or traitor. Um, so while we get a few um, specific mentions of roundhead, it's normally paired with these other kind of political words, kind of labeling uh, the victims as traitors to the king and putting them in that context. And there's also words like English dogs, which is one that I really focus on in one of my chapters, um, where it's in a very violent context. So English dog normally appears when people are being uh, physically assaulted and often killed in very gruesome ways. And I think there's a whole um, interesting discussion about that um, as well. Um, but I won't go into it for, for now, because uh, I could keep, go on about English dogs for quite a while. Um, in terms of standardization, I think that goes a lot with um, the question of reliability in the 1641 depositions. Um, it's very hard to know exactly if it's standardized. I think we can say that if you find something that's a very unique term, um, it's, it's probably not. Um, maybe rogues and whores and traitors were kind of a standard, um, very strong insult in 17th century Ireland and England. 
that could have been inserted or um, prompted. Um, unfortunately, we don't we don't get exactly how people were asking questions. Um, so we don't know how if they were really prompting them or giving a general um, just kind of open question about what kind of treasonous words they might have heard and anything else. Um, in terms of uh, being asked about treasonous words, they definitely were being asked about that specifically. Um, and we also do get a few accounts where people are respond and say that they hadn't heard anything, which I think also kind of throws a little bit of confusion into them just um, putting in general responses that they also did say that some people didn't hear these words. Um, so each account has to be kind of looked at on its own. Um, but yeah, it's important to remember that they could have been manipulated, especially when we think of the words that um, were written as um, terms that were used for the Irish or the rebels as they refer to them. Um, sometimes they're referred to as traitorous rebels. Um, there's a few villainous Irish. Um, and the work of Nicola Macloyd, she, um, she actually applied a linguistic methodology to it and noted that there was a formula for these words appearing. But this is in reference to the Irish um, and labeling them in a very negative way, not so much the words that they were saying to, uh, to the English victims. Um, so it is a, it is a tricky question, um, but there's lots more to discuss. I'll leave it for there. Super. Um, we have, a, I suppose, a related question um, this time for Joel. And Mihola Shukru asks, following on from Brendan's question, do you face the same linguistic challenges in terms of the excluded, those who didn't speak English or read English language newspapers? I suppose we're talking about Vincent Morley's popular mind here to some degree. Yeah, Cleve, do you mind spotlighting me because I don't think I could spotlight myself, at least it's not working. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah, definitely. There are, uh, this is something that I have been thinking a lot about and it's actually something that I've uh, addressed by trying to uh, pick up a bit of Irish. But yeah, I think Vincent Morley um, is definitely the, the direction to point in the sense of, um, you know, his book uh, on the American Revolution, uh, Irish, pub, Irish Opinion in the American Revolution. Um, I think he, he definitely proves a, a kind of a, a dissemination of the news um, to uh, different uh, groups uh, that would have that linguistic barrier would have uh, would have been uh, a, a something keeping them from this discourse, uh, as well as uh, another thing that you see is uh, reports of the news being read um, throughout Ireland in uh, in different um, different towns or uh, different places um, being read to uh, groups of people, um, something that would have uh, obviously um yeah spread this news but it's also a question of um you know who who it, it just points out who was excluded and i think in that way um i think it says something uh as well and i think we need to uh the question of imperial identities is something that has come up recently and is quite topical um in the sense that uh there were uh there were irish uh anglo-irish actors and even parts of the, um, the upper class uh, Catholic uh, population in Dublin that were feeling very patriotic uh, and, and were possibly a little patriotic towards empire um, at this time. Um, so I think uh, it's, it's definitely an issue that will be addressed uh, in, the, in the dissertation, um, as well as questions in, in America um, of, of those other groups that would be excluded 
um, from these uh, from these discourses, and it's uh, it's something that will um, yeah will feature for sure. So thank you for that question. Just to follow up again, Joel, just another question here about type of evidence that would make a compelling argument that information via newspapers leads to action or not. What you were talking about the sort of action, ideas to action sort of, so can you provide us with a sort of example that you're thinking about there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, when I was looking at, uh, an example would be when I was looking in at 1779, uh, the free trade crisis. Uh, one thing that I noticed as you read a lot of papers um, is in, in a way, the newspaper sometimes doesn't just reflect uh, what's going on, but it, in a way it can shape a narrative uh, in that way that it begins to report events as happening as part of a united movement, maybe before uh, uh, even much of a united movement is happening. Um, in that way, uh, in this period, you see uh, political uh, newspapers that are trying to make a statement and they report things in that way. And, and, and it's also interesting to look at um, the printers that were printing these papers and the different agendas they had, as well as the fact that there were clear financial agendas. Um, but yeah, so action in that sense of, I think at times uh, the newspaper has, uh, it's, you know, we can't say that there isn't a, an element of, um, you know, the, the way the story is told, the way the story is reported, the way the event is reported. Um, and so I think a sustained reading that doesn't just pick one, you know, one paper and read it, but actually looks at, uh, at these events or different things over time uh, can, can in ways say something about the actions taken. But that's also why I um, wanna look at, uh, get into the archives and look at a little bit about the printers that were printing things, as well as uh, other reactions to papers where people were saying this was in the press or where those in power are uh, actually quite afraid, make, you know, saying nervous things about the press and trying to quiet the press. Um, so I hope that uh, provides some answer. Thank you for your question. Hi, Casper, question for you. Um, and this isn't me, but it could be. How central are debates over the emergence of the fiscal military state to your study of the generality lands? Um, so actually, um... Uh, quite central because uh, the emergence of the fiscal military state is uh, quite directly linked to uh, the decline of the Dutch Republic. Um, it was uh, very much not able to keep up with uh, broader European trends uh, in that regard. And uh, the decline of the Republic is also very much linked to uh, the governance of the Generality Lands. Uh, the Generality Lands were very much a military frontier above all else. They were a strongly fortified barrier to the main threat, which was France. And um, as it became less capable of actually defending this frontier and um, yeah, defending itself, uh, it became more vulnerable to, um, to foreign invasion. So not only uh, do we see instances of 1744 to 1748 where they're actually overrun by a foreign force, but also as um, the Republic became less of a major actor on the world stage. Um, it also uh, became less involved with it. It became more neutral. And hence the, the Generality Lands being mostly a, a military, uh, of military importance also became uh, less significant, uh, I'd say, to the Republic as well. So it, it, it definitely does uh, matter in that regard. So it's just to follow up on that, have you, 
you mentioned on your final slide, you, you sort of hinted at comparisons on other borderlands. And have you been thinking about other 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 regions to where we can see something similar? I'm thinking about some of the work done on this sort of um, the kind of contested Pyrenees in the long 18th century, but also also some of the some of the Habsburg lands as well. Surely one has the same sort of disaggregated territory and sort of frontier issues with sort of particularly military frontiers. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been looking um, actually the Habsburg frontiers quite a bit, especially the the Habsburg Ottoman border, which um, mostly from the Ottoman perspective, I, I've been looking there. Um, was very much a military frontier, and there you can also see that, um, well, at the, the core of the Ottoman state, they had relative centralized policies at the frontier. It, it just, uh, it, it, the centralization really fell away, uh, and they were far more pragmatic. Also, what is very interesting is actually the Austrian Netherlands, just across the border from the Generality Lands. Um, as far as I've seen so far, they were governed in a somewhat similar way as the Generality Lands, uh, being governed large, uh, largely by the Austrian foreign ministry, um, and that is uh, being the state's general being largely the foreign ministry, if you will, of the of the republic, because all other matters were handled by the provinces. Uh, there might be some uh, similarities there, but uh, I think um, on the on the broader question of comparing the borderlands um, with other areas of Europe, I think there's definitely some comparison to be made there. They would have faced some similar issues like the, the religious uh, divergence and the fact that it was a military frontier. That being said, the, the structure of the Republic was quite anomalous, I'd say. And uh, in that sense, um, just some of the, the, the issues of governance might have uh, diverged from, um, from other countries. Excellent, that's very, that's very interesting. Um, we have, I have another question for Grace, and then I'm going to put out a plea for any questions for James, or I'm going to ask one in a moment. Um, Grace, one question here, just about following on from that question in terms of comparative, is there anything that we can speak of in terms of the 1641 depositions or anything we can talk about in a comparative angle? Have you been looking at any other sources that have the similar issues with language and so forth? Thank you. Um, am I, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, I think there are um, other sources that we can look at. Um, there are some testimonials in France um, that Mark Greengrass uh, addresses in actually a book on the 1640 depositions. And I think there's a lot of um, other, um, especially in Germany, and even ideas of pamphlets that were later printed of the 1641 depositions. Um, some of those um, issues we can maybe bring to that as well. In my own research, I stay very focused on the depositions themselves and then also on um, other laws that were existing in 17th century Ireland. So I don't go to a comparative angle um, because there's quite enough to uh, really delve into with the depositions, but it's definitely for a future. And also um, in terms of looking at some of the work that other historians have done in France in particular has been really beneficial to um, trying to address these problems that sometimes we can find in the depositions, especially related to questions of eyewitness um, and also hearsay accounts, but also questions of trauma and memory I think those are other things that we can learn from um, other historians, but I think that the 1641 depositions are, are very unique in a lot of other ways, which I won't get into at the moment, but thank you. Thank you very much. Um, 
I suppose um, just James, just to pick up a bit um, and the sort of the different histories that you're looking at and you're extend and um, yeah we have a question here i'm going to go for this one instead from show makino and um, in the restoration he asks he thinks there was a history writing boom but where were the books published mainly london or dublin if it was mainly london was there a kind of kind of boom in english history awareness in england and we might add you know was there a boom um this is a bit of an interesting one for Irish history because some of them are published in London, some of them are published in Dublin, many are unpublished and circulate on the continent or are published on the continent. Um, I wouldn't pin them on any kind of publication boom, rather there's, they always seem to be published around events. So we get a, a big outpouring of writing on the restoration as it's happening within a couple of years. So most of Lynch's work happen within the first four or five years after the restoration and he's basically trying to make a case for um, the reversal of the land settlement as why the Irish were loyal all along and why they should not be punished and why they should have access to the uh, Irish parliament. Again in the 1670s with the Popish plot you get a big a glut of material on Ireland again because obviously the large Catholic population and the fear of an Irish Catholic invasion of England um, so you get the republication around that time of John Temple's Irish Rebellion, you know, to remind an English audience as to why it was necessary to go over to Ireland in the first place. Um, and then again, you get some in the 1680s, so around the accession of James II. So wherever you get a period of crisis, there seems to be more material coming out on Ireland. Um, there's other smaller controversies, like, for example, Walsh's history appears in the 1670s. Um, and he claims that he's spurred on to do it by the Earl of Castlehaven, who's trying to defend the reputation of the Irish Confederates. And Walsh goes off and writes something that's slightly different because he feels like he can't do that yet. He ends up writing a deeper history of Ireland, claiming that he'll get around to writing the second part at some point and then never does. Um, so I hope that answers the question. I don't really see a particular boom, rather that publication material comes out when there's some kind of contextual need for it in the eyes of the authors. Like for example, Lynch writes his Cambrances verses because he sees in the late 1650s and 1660s, he claims that there's circulation of the manuscripts of Geraldus Cambrances, which he feels are anti-Irish and have been, they definitely are anti-Irish. And he feels that they're um, turning continental Catholics against the Irish. So he feels the need then to write his argument against that to justify, to justify, um, Irish history, Irish laws, Irish religion to a continental audience, though, of course, he slips in a lot of material about the restoration crisis in Ireland. Excellent. And then we now have a lot or a boom of questions for James. We've one here from Alan Ford um, inquiring, does apocalyptic Pope as Antichrist, etc., still have a role in Protestant history writing in the restoration period? Traditionally, we thought this was very much a product of Fox and the Puritans in the early 17th century. Does it persist after 1660? I'll give you a second question while we're at it. Um, given the difficulties assessing reception and impact, is there a danger of focusing on unrepresentative or idiosyncratic texts? Uh, for Alan, um, I have talked to him about this before and it's something I'm still trying to look into, but I absolutely think that it does still have some kind of a current within, within this period. And I mean, there's one of the things in my research, which is very important, is looking at how arguments 
change in the new context. So for example, Usher writing on apocalyptic Catholicism, apocalyptic Protestant accounts of Catholicism and the danger of Catholicism is very different than someone like Richard Cox writing on it because Cox is not religiously minded as far as I can tell. He's a judge, he's a politician. I, I have doubts as to how, how, much, um, how much theology Richard Cox really has. So for him to insert kind of Usher's writings on the dangers of Catholics and the Pope as Antichrist, um, it serves a different purpose. So he's more talking about, again, it fits into his argument about the Irish as degenerate and violent and essentially in needing of anglicization in terms of their manners. So for him to do that, it means something different. Um, and well, I have lost the questions. What was the second question? Given the difficulties of assessing reception, reception and impact, um, which goes back to something Graham was talking about two weeks ago, mm -hmm. is there a danger of focusing on unrepresentative or idiosyncratic texts? This is a big danger in my own research, especially. Um, my answer, which I sometimes think might be a bit of a non-answer, is to look at the arguments that they're making. So they might be idiosyncratic, but the arguments represent a possibility. So for example, I have um, reference to Stuart Presbyterian, hist uh, Presbyterian historian who, as far as we can tell, no one ever reads his history, but it highlights the possibility of a Presbyterian interpretation of the Irish past that we don't have anywhere else. It's, it's, it's idiosyncratic, but I still think it's worth investigating. Having spent much of a year transcribing that very text, <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will agree with you on that. Um, <coughs> do we have any final questions out there? Um, if anybody has, send them in to us. Um, otherwise, I really just want to thank our four contributors. I think what have been really insightful um, presentations on their current research, and I think it gives an idea of the sort of breadth of research ongoing here in the Centre for Early Modern History. And we could have extended this ad of not quite ad infinitum, but there's quite a, a large variety of other projects still going on. Um, and we will hopefully get a chance to showcase those, those in, a, in a future date. Um, I also want to just thank the audience for their questions and to highlight our next seminar will take place again in two weeks time. Next week is a bank holiday, though how much bank holidays really matter these days is another point. And we will have Dr. Timothy Murta and Neil Johnston from the Beyond 22 project and working both um, Tim in, con in conjunction with Prony at the moment and Neil uh, works for the National Archives in the UK. Um, and they're going to be talking about the early modern dimensions beyond 2022. And I suspect they're going to be partly on a fishing expedition looking for input and ideas and, thing, and ways in which our early modern community can contribute to that project and work with that project. So um, we'll be looking for as much ideas as possible on that, that date. So that's two weeks time. And then we've got a full program working through um, working through November, taking us to British Chartrists, I think the following week, um, to toleration and British army recruitment in the 1750s and 60s thereafter with Scott Sowerby, and then to the Food Culture Project with Susan Flavin. And that's just November. And then we move into, um, we had them then of Jason McGilligish and Jane Olmeyer in the early December. So that's just to whet your appetites for what's to come. The bar has been set very high in the last two weeks, um, and we shall we shall leave it there. So thank thank you very much to everybody for their participation. Thank you.
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.